New York City, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. Welcome to VinePair. And Zach, today we are talking about VinePair's top 50 wines of the year. Absolutely. It's an exciting time for us as we unveil the 2018 list of the 50 top wines for the year. And Adam, I know you uh, are a big part of the process of creating that list, but I know you don't do it alone. I think you've got someone else uh, joining us for this conversation who can shed some light on the process. I do. I have a staff writer who writes mostly about wine for us, Tim McCurdy, in the studio with me today. Hey, Tim. How's it going? I'm good, thanks, Zach. How are you doing? Uh, very well, thank you. And and thank you both for um, you know the the insight into this. Um, and let's start with a, I think just like a simple question, which is, you guys taste, I'm guessing, thousands, tens of thousands of wines over the course of a year. How how in the world do you go from that whatever number to fifty? So it's been uh, yeah a year long process where we've been tasting wines together throughout the year. Um, there are also wines that we've sort of encountered in the wild and enjoyed ourselves, and then come back and spoken about and tried together again. And um, I think that we've compiled the list using wines, which which we feel like we can find, which are accessible to people and not only based on our own tastes, also wines which we think will appeal to the general public. Yeah, I think, you know, for us, the biggest uh, push in in what we've been creating is, you know, we do taste, as you said, like thousands of wines a year. It's really important to us to try to create a system that is different um, than the way a lot of other publications do it. So we don't only taste wines that uh, come in through submission, but we also do what we call as an open call for nominations from writers. So, Zach, I know you submitted some wines uh, that you loved this year. And then if we are considering them for top 50, we we actually uh, taste them again uh, as a group, um, and then that's how we come up with the ranking. So it, it's it's pretty different in terms of that it's not just uh, you know specific to wines that were submitted and potentially even paid to be submitted. We actually don't charge for anyone to submit their wines for for tastings here at Vine Pair. Um, but we think that that way it's a lot more democratic because there's just a lot of like beautiful wines out there that you may not encounter if. Uh, you know, or may not make a list if, if the person doesn't know that they can submit, et cetera. And that's that's how we think we shed light on things that maybe other people don't. Absolutely. And, and I'm wondering, too, you mentioned availability and accessibility. And, and one thing that I noticed in, in looking over the list is there are definitely, you know, a few wines on here that are um, not cheap, but there's a pretty good mix of price points. Uh, it's not just hundred, two hundred, five hundred thousand dollar bottles of wine. There's stuff that can be you know, maybe not an everyday wine for everyone, but there's some wines on here that I think, you know, you can pick up um, at retail for 20, 25 bucks. Um, and that's pretty cool. Is, is it is it a focus to kind of have a diversity of price points or to just kind of work out that way? No, definitely. I mean, I think wine is something which is democratic. It's something which we think everyone should be able to enjoy. And, you know, when you assemble a, a list of top 50 wines, it doesn't make any sense if not everyone can go out and find those wines and buy those wines and actually drink them. I mean, you know, if you were going to comprise a list of top, I don't know, first growth Bordeaux wines, then it doesn't make any sense because 99.9% of consumers will never try those wines. For sure. Yeah. No, accessibility and in more ways than one is obviously key to a list that you hope anyone will actually use. No, yeah, completely. I mean, I think the biggest issue for us is ensuring that there is some national availability of these wines. Uh, I know I teased you with some of your submissions, uh, Zach, and some of them were super <laughs> low production. But I mean, look, I think, you know, there are wines that are amazing that all of us will get to hopefully drink in our lifetimes that are these unicorn wines. But I don't think those are wines that belong on a top 50 list of the year, right? We're really, we're talking about wines that 
are accessible and whether accessibility means that they're accessible based on availability and not price or price and not availability. We're trying to go for a list that really represents what we think is the current state of the the American wine world. And so I think that also, you know, every time we try to craft, craft this list, we're we're trying to tell a story of what we think is happening in the world of American wine right now for our reader. Maybe not for, uh, you know, the reader that's that's much older than, than our, our demographic, uh, but for our reader, it, it's really thinking about what we're interested in drinking right now and what we're interested in uh, in telling our friends about. So that's that's what goes into sort of thinking about the list as a whole. Absolutely. And, and speaking of things that will be maybe a, a surprise to the readership, and it was a little bit of a surprise to me, although a very kind of cool and interesting one, so uh, to not beat around the bush any further, the number one wine on the list is the Mayakamas Vineyards Cabernet Sauvignon. So 2014 vintage Napa Valley. Mayakamas uh, incredibly iconic producer who I think everyone would agree went through some really unfortunate times uh, in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, the winery was owned by some people who were more interested in the name than in the quality of the wine. Um, so talk to me about this wine because I think uh, for a lot of drinkers uh, of our age, Napa is not necessarily their go-to region. Um, and maybe even if it is, they're more looking at uh, producers that don't have the let's say checkered past that Mayakamas has. So, so what is it about this wine that uh, made it stand out among all the wines you guys tried this year? So this wine surprised the fuck out of us <laughs> because exactly, man, like, dude, we had that Napa podcast. Like, first of all, I think the, the broader story about this list that is so shocking is I think this is going to, this could be the year that Napa becomes accessible to the next generation. And maybe not in price, but in style, there are producers that are out there. Look, you look at the list. We have Mathiason at 11. We have Brandlin in the 30s, right? I think the exact number is 24, actually. Oh, 24, sorry. You know, it's like we have these, we have these producers that are making, you know, mountain fruit. They're high, high acid, low oak, low extraction, making more old world style wines. And Mayakamas really happened uh, because not only was it a favorite in an initial tasting, but this was a favorite in the office among the entire staff this year. Uh, when we opened this again to retaste it for the ranking, so we knew it was going to be a top 10 wine. It came down to three to four wines really at the very end. And those are, those are basically the wines you see, you know, ranked in the top five. When these wines were opened again, a, a overwhelmingly Mayakamas was preferred by the office. Huh. Um, it is just... For, it is a really special wine. Every, everyone drinking it just was blown away by it. I don't want to you know, drone on too much about it. I want Tim to sort of give his impressions too because we had different reactions about the wine, but both came to it in the same way of being like, I can't believe that I really love this Napa Cabernet so much uh, that I just – I can't get over how, how blown away I think most people will be by this wine once you buy it. Yeah, I think one thing that I would just like to add to that is that I was really impressed by the fact that it's drinking so well now. You know, it's only four years old and maybe from other Napa Cab that might be a little bit too young. People might say that's infanticide of uh, Napa Cab. But we were both very impressed by how well it's drinking now, but also the fact that it's got so much potential to age. And, you know, that kind of price point, I think that's something which is very important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you want to be able to 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 put a list out that isn't just here are 50 wines that you will enjoy in 10 years, um, but but also that, you know, that maybe do have that potential if someone is looking to to add one or two wines to their collection. I, I'm curious in that in that vein, Tim, in terms of wines that have some ageability um, or 
that maybe balance uh, you know their their drinkability right now with ageability. Um, you know, a couple of things that strike me in the in the top ten here. Um, uh, you have the Kiriani uh, Remnista Zinamavro, uh, the Cinquevigne uh, Barolo from Damilano. Those are definitely not wines that I would uh, varietals that I would necessarily think of as ready to drink at that age, you know, 2013 vintage. Um, where do you, where do you come down on those? Do you feel like those are wines that if someone is interested in those styles, they can open, you know, you know, today if they go out to the store right after listening to this and enjoy, or are those more, they're good now, but we really, we should really hang on to them for a while. No, those are absolutely two wines, which are drinking fantastic right now. I mean, if they weren't, they wouldn't be in the top 10. And these are wines which we've enjoyed, again, on multiple occasions. And every time that we've opened them, we've been blown away by them. Very cool. Yeah, that, I, I will say, personally for me, that Kiriani Zinamavro is actually um, a wine that I came very close to suggesting to you guys, too. So I'm glad it ended up on that list. Uh, it's a it's a really, really beautiful wine and, and a really cool varietal for those of you who are not familiar with it. Um, if you do like things like uh, Nebbiolo um, or like Norella Mascalese from Sicily, those kinds of... Uh, aromatic but also very kind of tannic and acidic white uh, reds not whites uh it's a great wine so i'm so excited right now that you told me that the kiriani was something you were going to nominate as well because so this was the this was the wine i was probably the most bullish on in in our tasting and creation of the top 50 list because i think that you know xenomavro and you know the region in in northern greece where it's really cultivated well has the potential to start rivaling i I hate to say i hate when we say things like this but i'm going to say anyways you know it's the next great barolo but like it really does have this Mm -hmm. incredible potential and guys if you're not looking at greece you're sleeping on it at this point this is not a country that is still a backwater that's that's only making you know village wines to be drunk you know at at amazing tavernas with you know ten dollar full meals like this country is making extremely high quality collectible age-worthy wines special occasion wines they are they're coming into their own and so it was a really important thing for us also to put this wine in the top five to really call that out, right? Like this is, you know, let's stop just looking when we look at the old world at, you know, Italy and France. Oh, for sure. And it is, it is true that, you know, Greece is one of a a number of uh, countries, I think in, in Europe that where that is true. I do think it's still, you need to be a little bit discerning because there is a lot of, I wouldn't say bad, but maybe a lot of, mediocre Greek wine that, that does end up on the market. Um, but when it's good and it's increasingly good more and more of the time, it's really, really fucking good. And I, I agree with you 100% there. Um, and so another thing that sort of struck me in looking over the list is champagne. And um, I mean, you don't need to convince me, the sommelier, that champagne is delicious. But I do think that, you know, we sometimes in our haste to offer people, let's say, oh, here's a more affordable sparkling wine. We We sort of immediately rule out champagne as an option for people. But, you know, a couple of the champagnes on the list here are not, like, crazy expensive. I mean, Delamotte's relatively reasonably priced uh, for a Blanc de Blanc. Charles Heitzig's Brut is, like, not that crazy expensive. Like, where where do you guys fall on this? And, and so how did champagne kind of make its presence felt on this on this list? So I think one of the things that stuck out to us this year and in tasting the wines for this list is that we kept coming back to champagne because it's something that offers consistent quality. If you're going to spend a little bit more on a bottle of wine, then if you're spending on that, if you're spending that amount on champagne, you know you're going to get a return for your money. 
and you know that it's going to deliver consistently. For sure. I mean, and that's a that's a great thing to keep in mind all the time. <laughs> well, and I think too, like the biggest thing that uh, that Tim and I chatted about, uh, you know, before before jumping on the podcast, which I'd love him to chat a little bit more about with you, is like we've also like we've seen Champagne in the last year really work very hard, and not not just the last year, but in the last few years. I mean, you're a perfect example of this, Zach, uh, on the last you know on our Thanksgiving podcast when you talked about your Champagne and, and fried chicken party. Like it really is making an effort to be more accessible because I think like the positive of the fact that a lot of us have talked about the more affordable bottles for so long has caused Champagne to realize like look like this we can't just be seen as this super high-end you know club kid offering anymore like we, we have to we have to try to be a wine for every day and there are some producers that are really doing that well i think you know the example of uh you know the delamont at you know at number six on our list that's a vintage blanc de blanc that was under a hundred bucks is awesome um and look you watch them you know, trying to show you how how these wines can really have a lot of fun with lots of other with lots of other foods. I mean, Tim's a big fan of champagne and pizza, for example. Hmm. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's that trend of high low pairing champagne with sort of cheaper foods. I don't know, pizza, fried chicken. That's something we have a lot of fun with, and that's something we've been encouraged to do a lot more in recent years. And I think the brands themselves are embracing that as well. Um, Something I was talking with Adam about earlier is that earlier on this year, I was at the birthday party of one of the champagnes on our list, actually. And rather than hold that in Manhattan, they decided to host their event in a cool pizza place in Bushwick in Brooklyn and maybe try and make it a little bit edgier. But it shows that these brands themselves are embracing that. And, um, you know, I don't think either of us are drinking champagne every week, even though we would definitely like to. Um, <laughs> It shows that it's something which should not just be for special occasions. And, you know, if you're going to spend a little bit more money on a bottle of wine, then spend it on champagne. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, as you said, it's a, the, the promise of consistent quality is maybe more of a certainty there than almost anywhere else. Okay. So, so enough about sort of the stuff that people might be familiar with. I have a question, some questions about some really weird, fun wines on this list. Um, and let's start with the Cune Monopole Classico, which is another wine I love, 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 but it is a weird fucking wine. Tim, can you explain this wine to people? Because I think it, it, it you just can't pick it up off the shelf and, and get it. You kind of have to understand what the hell it's about. I'm really glad you've asked me about that wine because that's one of my favorite wines of the year. Um, so this is a white Rioja and it's completely unique and it's unique in the fact that they're the only producers which are allowed to make wine in the way that they're doing. And this is an old style of Rioja where some sherry is added to the white and it, it just gives the wine so much more character. It gives it oxidative characteristics. And I personally think it's the best wine to pair with food as well. I had a bottle recently where I, um, Paired it with some charcuterie, some nuts, some cheese, and that is just the best wine for that, I think. Yeah, and it's another wine that's just like really crazy cheap. Like for for how how special a wine it is, I mean, I don't know exactly, but I mean, I yeah. I'm pretty sure I've I bought it like retail for twenty dollars. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's accessible, and it's also something as well which you can find. Although this is the only producer that which is making that style of wine, you can find it everywhere. And we encourage people to do so, like not too much because we want to buy some bottles for ourselves. <laughs> but definitely like go out and try a bottle of the Cooney because I'm a big champion of it. Yeah. And it's yeah, also, I, like the, I will say from, go ahead, Adam. 
Oh, I was just gonna say, like, I think for us too, it's, it's like cool to be able to recommend geeky wines that you actually can find. I think far too often, like, we get caught up uh, in the markets that we're in with access to geeky wines, and so we'll say, "Oh my God, this, you know, this natural wine from the Loire is amazing." And people will be like, "Yeah, like, it's in two wine shops in Brooklyn. Uh, I can't get this in Atlanta." Whereas, like, this you can find. So that that's why it was it was so fun to be able to recommend it. Yeah. Speaking of a slightly geekier side of things, uh, whichever of you is maybe more responsible for this. I was also intrigued to see the uh, Berlotto Verduno Palaverga on the list because, you know, we think of red wine from Piedmont and we think of um, Nebbiolo, but Palaverga is like the weird bastard cousin that also hangs out up there. And uh, it's a definitely a fun wine, but but I would love to hear, you know, one or both of you give your thoughts on it. I mean, we – it's a wine that actually – so uh, Josh, uh, the uh, the co-founder with me of Vine Pear, is like really, really bullish on this wine. So he said, you know, when we were talking about nominations for this year, he was like, look, we have to retaste this wine that I bought 10 times this year so far. Um, and, you know, we just – we found it to be just really light and lively and in a way that made it so easy drinking. And again, it was this way to sort of, you know, say when we, when we all sort of fell in love with the wine for just how fun it was, look, there's more happening in Piedmont than Barolo and Barbaresco. Not that those aren't incredible wines, but, you know, come on, these, this region has to have shit to drink when they can't afford Barolo and Barbaresco every night. Yep. And this is one of those just super fun wines that it's, it's just really fun to share with people. Absolutely. I also noticed another thing on the list that, that jumped out to me is we've got four different Rieslings on the list, and yet none of them are from Germany, which most people would assume is the home of the best Riesling. Um, so you, we, there's three actually American Rieslings, one from uh, New York, one from California, one from Oregon, and then um, a French Riesling from Alsace. Um, Tim, can you, can you talk a little bit about the, the Rieslings you guys tasted and, and how these ones in particular stood out? Well, of course, one which stood out in particular was the Herman J. Weimer, because that's our number two wine this year. And this is a wine which Adam and I taste together a few times. And yeah, we just think that this is a stunning example of Riesling from the Finger Lakes. Um, but maybe looking at the category more in the broader scale, um, one thing which stood out to us this year was Rieslings from the West Coast. As you mentioned, we've got a Riesling on there from Napa, we've got from uh, Pacific Northwest, and... Yeah, we were just really impressed by them, I think. Very cool. Yeah, and come on, Zach. Why don't what you should actually talk about this? Because the <laughs> Pacific Northwest, we tasted it, but you're the one that nominated it. So yeah. I mean, you also did not nominate any Rieslings from Germany. Like, look, I think there are amazing Rieslings from Germany, but for us it was uh, you know, a, as a whole, I I hate to to put the entire Vine Pear staff in a box. But I think a lot of people on the Vine Pair staff have been resistant to Riesling. I think in general, uh, you know, in terms of millennial consumers, like we've been taught for a very long time and the wines that we've come in contact with are inc- that Riesling is very sweet, mm-hmm. uh, that it can't have high acid, that it's, you know, it's really a headache in a bottle. And so these were wines that we we were able to share with everyone here and everyone here really thought were just awesome. I mean, Herman J. Weimer was one that, you know, we poured for a staff tasting after uh, we had tasted it for a, a review session and people were just like, what is this? Mm-hmm. This is awesome. And we'd be like, uh, this is Riesling. Yeah. So like, no, there's, there's no way in hell this is Riesling. This is too good. And I think like I, that's, a, that's a bummer to be able to just have to say that for Riesling. Um, but yeah, but I, I actually want to know from you, tell me about why you nominated the Riesling from Washington. 
so actually from Oregon, uh, Ovum. Oh, from uh, Oregon. Oregon. Sorry, no worries. <laughs> I, we're all basically it's all big one state up here, one big state up here. Uh, so well, I've yeah, it is right. <laughs> I have two thoughts. So so first on that specific wine, the uh, Memorista Riesling. Um, Ovum is a really interesting project um, that I really enjoy. They they focus on principally Riesling, although they do make some other um, white varietals, Gewurztraminer, a little bit of Muscat. And they work with um, some older vines in um, the Willamette Valley, uh, so 40, 45-year-old vines mostly, uh, stuff that dates to the 70s, which is not that common in um, anywhere on the West Coast. Um, and they they really kind of look at these really old, very sort of, you know, kind of just like vines that have been, for, I mean, not forgotten in the sense that they've been abandoned, but just no one's really taken them seriously. And, and they do. And they make um, really, really beautiful wines. Unfortunately, as Adam alluded to earlier, not super high uh, quantities of these um, because there's not a lot of Riesling planted in, in the Willamette Valley. Um, there's a decent amount, but it's not a huge uh, qu- a huge part of the production. Um, but it, they just have this incredible, you know, depth of flavor, I guess, which isn't always something that people expect from Riesling, even great Riesling. Um, but they have a body and a weight to them that, that while being totally dry, um, just has a, has a certain power, which I think, again, is a thing that can be hard to find in Riesling. And, and I was going to say, you know, having just been in Germany myself and, and thinking about German Riesling a lot, uh, one of I think one of the reasons that maybe it isn't represented on this list is I think Germany is really struggling with its approach to Riesling right now. Um, Germany is one of the countries that is being most impacted, not necessarily positive or negative, by uh, climate change. And it's really had a huge impact on Riesling most of all um, because they're getting to a point now where there's uh, – in the past, ripeness was kind of hard to achieve in a lot of the grapes um, and now it's relatively easy for them to get fully ripe, um, maybe even overripe. And as a result, you've had this that trend coinciding with a trend in Germany towards um, making really dry styles of Riesling. Um, that's what the domestic market in Germany has really wanted um, is dry Riesling, not sweet at all. And so you end up with these Rieslings that are like, you know, like 14 percent alcohol, which is really high for white wine, especially for Riesling. And they're kind of they're not. They can be good, but a lot of them are just a little disjointed. So you end up either with these sort of powerful wines that are really like almost hard to place as Riesling, or you end up with residual sugar, which may or may not be what people want. Um, and I think it's actually telling that that some of the other regions, um, you know, the Finger Lakes and uh, Oregon, Napa and Alsace, as we mentioned, um, are maybe not all across the board making better Riesling than Germany. That's kind of a too big of a statement. But but I think you know, Germany is struggling a little bit in terms of just figuring out its approach to Riesling um, in this changing climate and world. Yeah, and don't forget New York State. I mean, I think <clears throat> that's what, you know, we've talked about this on another podcast before. I, you know, I think New York State is, is really emerging as the preeminent region for Riesling in America and potentially, you know, able to very quickly go toe to toe with Alsace, Austria and Germany. They're just, there's, the climate is right for it. Um, they're creating wines with a lot of, be- like, you know, gorgeous acidity that are really balanced. And I think as more people are realizing this, you're having more talented winemakers move there. And then you have the same benefit that I think you have, uh, you know, in, in California, which is access to a premier university, which is, you know, Cornell, which is specializing in venology. And so when you have that and you have people who are studying actually winemaking and grape growing, et cetera, viticulture, all that stuff, you're going to get a region that just is going to develop faster and is going to attract people who have lots of talent. So 
Adam, I have a, a question about another region that I think you are, or I guess it's not even just a region, a country that you're quite familiar with and, and have visited, and that's Chile, because there are a number of Chilean wines on this list. And I think, you know, in some ways, um, a lot of people's familiarity with Chilean wine is really kind of only um, with relatively, um, you know, sort of affordably priced wines, and may, they may not be aware of the really high quality uh, that you see maybe slightly above that price point. So I don't know if you want to talk about any of the specific wines on the list. Obviously, we've got a, a Chilean wine at number three uh, on the list um, or any others that that stood out to you as and, and how they sort of speak to what's going on in Chile right now. Yeah, so I actually haven't counted how many we have on the list. I think it's two or three. Um, but the Vic is, is just is a stunning wine. Uh, it's a Bordeaux you know, blend that tastes like it's from Bordeaux. Um, it's just, it's this wine that you know is going to age super well. Uh, the story behind the property is really amazing. Uh, you know, they, they went down into a valley in Chile, which, in which no other producer in Chile thought wine could be made. They bought, I mean, look, it also helps to have, to be a billionaire. Um, <laughs> so I wouldn't uh, you know, know, but sure. Honesty, yeah, a, a, the, a billionaire does own <laughs> does own Vic, and that is his last name. Um, but so they bought the entire valley. They bought eleven thousand acres. Um, they cleared the the valley, planted vines. They built a state of the art wine facility, um, and the wines coming out of the facility are unreal. Um, and I think it's it's proof. They're sorry. They are proving to a lot of Chileans that there are other wines that can be made besides bulk wine. Um, and I think, you know, it also helps when revenue is not a problem. Look, don't they say that like the first thing you do when you become rich is you buy a winery and lose all of your money. Um, <laughs> so like that, I definitely think it, it isn't the case, but because they have the luxury of not needing to turn a profit, they're able to, you know, create a wine and really, and really push to create a wine that is just unreal. Um, whereas I think, you know, a lot of other people in a lot of these, you know, developing countries with developing wine, wine regions really do need to create wines that, that sell for the market first. Um, but I think that wineries like Vic help then push the way and push the entire country into the fine wine world because they're proving to all wine consumers that fine wine really can be made in these countries. Um, and so I think you're going to see a lot of people following suit uh, in Chile and starting to try to make wines in similar style to Vic, which are uh, lower alcohol, higher acid. Again, it, it's the theme of the entire list, right? But wines that really do uh, you, you know, have, have a balance there that, that aren't super extracted, et cetera. And I think, you know, Triple C is another one of those examples. It's, it's you know, um, one of our other wines from Chile on the list. And it's also a wine, it's another actually Bordeaux blend, um, but that is really playing on the strengths of the country and really creating a wine that, because look, Chile is California and South America, basically. Mm -hmm. Right. So it has it has all of the, the potential to be one of the greatest wine regions in the world. Um, and And so therefore, you know, it's, you have the producers that are really starting to realize this and are really taking advantage of it and making some incredible, incredible wine. Very cool. Tim, I'm wondering, you know, we've touched on obviously a number of the wines um, on this list, but but another country that we see pretty heavily represented and mentioned a little bit is Italy, and, and in particular, a fair number of Sangiovese-based wines. So what what is it that drew you guys to to Tuscany in uh, in this creating this list? I mean, there's something about Italian wines and the character of Italian wines which you just can't resist. And it's something which shines through. I mean, when, when we talk about tasting notes, maybe when we're trying different wines and trying to maybe try and write a review of some wines, there's that character with 
Tuscany especially, that just seems to shine through. It's a sort of ruggedness, it's an earthiness. And when that's really well represented and when that's balanced well with fruits and acidity and great tannins, that's something I really look for in a red wine. Very cool. All right. And I think, you know, my, my sort of last question for, for each of you guys to answer separately maybe is, as no surprise, the focus will always be on the top wine, top 10 but I'm I'm really curious about the bottom of the top 50 because I think sometimes, you know, it's easy to just sort of be like, oh, well, you know, whatever. Um, so if each of you has a wine that's in that, like, between 40 and 50 that you feel, you know, really strongly about or that you think uh, deserves some some mention here at this point, um, I would love to hear your thoughts. And, and maybe, Tim, maybe you can go first. I'm laughing because Adam doesn't want me to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you absolutely should. Well, no, it's because he's going to steal the so, same wine that I'm probably going to say. I'm not sure whether I am actually, but so, no, I'm going to go for a different wine to Adam. So I actually spent a couple of years living in Argentina and I enjoy Malbec, but I, Adam over here absolutely hates it. And I spend a lot of time trying to convince him that it's not as bad as he thinks it is. I so have, I have tried wines, that with a few other things and, and it's a, it's a difficult <laughs> task. And look, I get it. I see where he's coming from. I know the style of Malbec that he doesn't like, and I myself don't drink that either. We've got one wine on there. It's the number 44, I believe. Yeah, Bodega Amalaya. And that's a Malbec from Salta. Look, this is a $12 bottle of wine. And it's a wine which has grown at incredible altitudes. It's, um, it, it's a complete departure from the sort of riper style from um, Mendoza. Of course, it's going to have some ripeness, but it's fresher as well. You've got a lot of influence from sun. And indeed, like after having spoken to some winemakers from that region, they talk about sun being just as important as terroir. And I think that really shines through in this wine. And again, it's $12 and you can get it everywhere. I think that's fantastic. And I think everyone should go out and buy it. So I will admit that I really like this wine. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we, we are recording that, right? We've yeah, got that on, got do, that on tape. Okay, I, I do really like this. And, and look, I mean, again, I think t- Tim is completely right. Like the reason that I haven't loved Malbec in, in the past is just because there is this one style that's really dominated the market. It's that just like, you know, juice and that's it. Um, but again, like this proves there's a lot of people in a lot of these countries that are doing really cool things. And look, for me and for everyone else, I think you cannot go buy a region based on its reputation. Like it, it, there are, you're going to find a wine in any region. I think that fits your style because winemakers are not all making the same kind of wine. I think we like to even talk as wine writers and critics and things like that as, you know, there've been these movements, there's the natural wine movement, there was the parkerization of wine, et cetera. But even in all these movements, there've been winemakers that have continued to make their own style. And that may have been your style. And then those styles come into vogue and go out of vogue, right? And so there, there are people making great wines in Argentina. There, there really are. There are people making great wines in Germany with the Rieslings, et cetera. I'm so, sorry, Germany, that there's not a Riesling on the list. Uh, we apologize <laughs> to a few other regions. For me, I think the wine in the top 40 that was the most just mind-blowing for us this year was uh, the, the Rosé from Virginia. So uh, the, the early Mountain Rosé, you know, owned – by you know Steve Case of AOL is just an awesome bottle of wine. Um, you know I think maybe maybe rosé is like the should be the wine of the region. Like maybe just the, that's what the the region of Virginia is apt to make because you know you're picking the fruit at the right time in which it's not too 
too overripe in which it kind of loses a lot of those characters. But this wine like was just awesome. It's it also is geeky. Um, also, it it's terrible to say this about a lot of rosés nowadays, but this is true. Like it's a rosé that tastes like wine. You know, it's like it's not it's not a rosé in which the producer put the wine out simply to make something that was pink that people would buy because everyone is buying anything that's pink right now. Uh, this is a serious wine. Um, and it was just – it had beautiful fresh fruit. Uh, it had a really bright acidity. Um, and it was just a wine that like all of us really enjoyed drinking. And they you know, luckily sent a few bottles to the office and they've disappeared. Um, so you know, <laughs> people have really enjoyed them. And again, like you know, Virginia, another one of these emerging wine regions – it's starting to come into its own and find really cool uh, styles that they're really great at. And, and this is one of those. Um, you know, the only, the only bummer is that, uh, unfortunately, Early Mountain is located really close to Trump's winery. But they say that doesn't impact the quality of the wine, and I'm hoping that it doesn't. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, well, we'll, we'll just, we won't mention that uh, more often than we need to. Uh, well, yeah, this is super fascinating. Uh, I can't wait to check out some of the wines on this list because while I'm familiar with some of them, there are definitely some uh, some new ones to me. And, and I, uh, I imagine that uh, you guys have some drinking plans for some of these bottles yourselves. Uh, yeah, we do. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Tim, Adam, uh, thank you guys so much. It, like I said, it was a real pleasure and really fun to kind of uh, get a feel for for what all went into this list. And obviously, folks, if you have uh, thoughts on your own favorite wines of 2018 or where we've screwed up, uh, you can contact us. It's uh, podcast at vinepair.com. Uh, and we would be more than happy to be told how we were wrong or right, which would be nice, too, if you feel that way. Well, Zach, thanks for having me on the show. Zach, uh, we'll be back at you guys next week. And uh, thanks for listening. And check out all these wines. I think you'll enjoy anything this on the list. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimm. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.